were married less than a year. I wanted 13 children, which he was happy enough with. He was shot a lot of times. I think he was standing with his back to them and they shot him up either side and that he turned round and they shot him in the face. We really did enjoy each other's company. We just talked all the time. I envisaged that that's the way it would have always been and he did too, that we would always have worked together as well as lived together, that it was that kind of a partnership, a partnership between the two of us. Nineteen seventy-two. Ireland signed a treaty joining the European Community, and while war was raging in Vietnam, millions watched their country's progress at the Olympic Games in Munich. But in a quiet farming community on the Fermanagh-Cavan border, these events seemed worlds away from everyday lives. It was in 1972 that a series of brutal murders took place. Cars and trucks rumble along the road that links Cavan with Fermanagh. If they're travelling south to Cavan, they'll shortly arrive in Belturbet. But if they're going north to Fermanagh, in a few miles they'll come to the busy village of Derry Lynn. Whichever way they travel, the drivers owe a debt of thanks to the Ahalane Bridge, which spans the Woodford River. It seems a fairly unremarkable structure. Nothing fancy, no trusses or girders, just a flat extension of the road. That means people can safely cross the waterways on their way to and from the border counties. Just ten years ago, I wouldn't have been able to walk over this bridge from my home in Cavan. Because just ten years ago, Ahalane Bridge was a ruined shell, a bridge in name only, made useless by a bomb planted by unidentified loyalist paramilitaries who blew it up in 1972 the year the Troubles hit this small rural farming community in Cavan and Fermanagh. A black year for this part of Ireland, the end marked by the Belturbet bomb which killed two teenagers. These are the personal stories of two local people who experienced tragedy that year. It's a year that local woman Betty Leonard, a Catholic from a nearby town, will never forget. We were marching in every town, practically in Ireland I suppose, and there were barricades in Enniskillen, I remember, night after night, and we would be on one side of the barricades and our Protestant neighbours, especially B-men, would be on the other side throwing stones over at us. And um, that went on for quite some time. And then in um, when the army came in, it became very fearful, I remember, 1970, 71. People were starting to be killed in Belfast. It didn't affect us a terrible lot because we weren't aware. We didn't know people that were killed. And I suppose my husband was the first in the community. And while it was extremely traumatic for me, it was similar for people in the community because suddenly it was in on your doorstep and it was extremely fearful. When you were going on the roads, you were constantly stopped and searched. 
Betty was born in Derry Lane, a small village of under a thousand people, overlooked by Knockninny Hill. She has good memories of her childhood, but, like many of her community, was always aware that things weren't as relaxed and easy as they should be. Well, I actually was born and bred in Derlin and lived there all my life. And I suppose we lived in a small place called Aclamad. And it was a very tightly knit community. We had about 20 or 25 houses and we all lived close by. And we more or less lived in each other's houses, really, when I think back on it. My mother was a local midwife and... Um, oh, I don't know, she seemed to be the local babysitter as well and people came to our house all the time and this, it was always full of children. And we were aware that uh, we were more or less second-class citizens because we didn't have a vote, we couldn't get a job and it was very difficult to get a house. So we were aware of all that growing up. There was um, a local man bought a minibus And it was absolutely brilliant because he could then take us all as a group to some function or other. And we went to Enniskillen to the Chipperfield Circus. I'll never forget it because it was absolutely brilliant. I think it was my first memory of being in Enniskillen. But I do remember this great sense of community because all the neighbours went as well. We probably had about 25 on the minibus. And it was my earliest memory of community feeling that I can remember of. This lovely cosy feeling of being out late at night and coming home late and then I remember when I was bigger I was on the back of my brother's bicycle going to a concert in Darylin and it must have been in the 50s and there was some trouble in the area there was a policeman shot in Darylin barracks at that time I think it was 1956 and um, we were coming home on our bicycles and the B-men stopped us and gave us a hard time, as I say, for not having a light on the bicycle. And it was becoming a little bit fearful, I suppose. It was in Derry Lane that Betty first met local man Louis Leonard. Louis came from a very patriotic family and was deeply involved in the local football club and credit union. He came from a nearby town to Derry Lane for work twice a week to sell his meat to people in the village. I knew Louis for a long time before we went out together. He worked in the local butcher shop. He was from Newton Butler, but he used to come to Derry Lynn to work uh, about twice a week. And I used to go into the butcher shop to him. So he became a friend very quickly. Uh, I worked in the local garage, Jim Murphy's garage, and he used to ring me every day. Even when we weren't going out, we were still best friends, uh, just constantly rang to see how we were and so on and we were engaged about a year when we got married he was an extremely outgoing individual everybody loved Louis he was um, involved in football he, children loved him He, um, my mother had three sons and she said he was better to her than any son I think in a way she nearly missed him more than I did if that was possible he was extremely outgoing. I suppose when I met him, I was very shy, even though I had been away in England for quite a few years, but I was still very shy and not nearly as outgoing as he was. And for the while that I was with him, for two or three years, he helped me to get out of myself because he had that way with him that he could take people out of themselves. And he was a very jolly person. I can't remember him hardly ever being in bad humour. You know, because we really did enjoy each other's company. We just talked all the time. We were more or less on the same wavelength, I suppose you could say. And um, 
I envisaged that that's the way it would have always been, and he did too, that we would always have worked together as well as lived together, that it was that kind of a partnership. It wasn't him working and me rearing the children, it was a partnership between the two of us. They look very young there, don't they? They definitely do, yes. My father is the oldest of the two, isn't he? Yeah. He'd be 58 now, wouldn't he? Or 59? 59 in July. 59 in July. Betty's son, Tony, pays a visit to his mum for tea. Fit-looking man, isn't he? A young father of six, Tony looks remarkably like his father, Louis. I haven't looked at these for ages. I don't know, did you see them recently at all? No, I haven't. He looks at his parents' wedding photographs with his mum, a wedding that took place in February 1972. Do you think you look like him? Sometimes I do. I have to say, I have an older son, and I think he looks even more like him. But I think you've got the square shoulders that he has. Yes. Betty wore a simple white dress with veil, while Louis wore a suit with the thick silk tie, the very same one his son Tony wore to his wedding over 20 years later. This is Dylan Church. And that was the two of us at the door. That was 1972, wasn't it? Yeah. February, 7th of February. We got married on the 5th of Your February, it was in the winter time. And we were married in in church. And I remember there was a bird singing on the roof and somebody commented that it was a sign of good luck. And I often thought afterwards it didn't turn out that way for me. But it was a winter's morning, it was a beautiful day, the sun was shining. We had the reception in Clonus in the Hibernian Hotel. There were 75 guests and it was a pound a head. <laughs> and there were 12 children and they got free and uh, it was a fairly intimate affair at that time couples didn't stay on we went off home off on our honeymoon at 8 o'clock and the rest went back to Louis's home place and they had a party all night and we missed it I know it sounds strange we also had his brother spending one night in our room in the hotel because he was up visiting him and he had nowhere to stay so he always maintained he came on honeymoon with us they're looking at the watch. Yeah. <laughs> They're checking the time. They're starting to panic slightly. So you're an hour late? I'm sure I was going to be late, so I was more than an hour. It wasn't my fault. I think he looks like He was one of eight or children, or and I was one of seven. And he wanted a string of butcher shops. So we had these great plans. By August 1972, Betty wasn't only a wife, but also a new mother. It was in this month that she gave premature birth to her new son, Tony. We had family straight away because say, I wanted my 13 children and I was getting on in years. And I had toxemia, so I was in hospital for a month. And uh, then Tony was born premature. born on the 4th of August but I remember um, I was brought down to the labour ward we say on a Tuesday morning I can't remember and I didn't come back till Wednesday morning and I don't actually remember him being born and I remember then waking up and um, I was brought up to the ward and all the women in the ward got round me because they thought there was something wrong when I hadn't come back and uh, they started cleaning me up Next thing, Louis appeared and I said to him, how come you're in so early? It was only seven o'clock in the morning. And I still thought he couldn't come in because he was too busy working. And um, 
I said to Milo, we have a child. And he said, yeah, no, I've seen him. And I said, what does he look like? They brought the baby up and put him across my chest. And I thought he'd only one ear. <laughs> he had all this hair and was covered over his ear. And I said, he's only got one ear. And he said, God, yeah, he's two. And he lifted the hair up. And my mother always said to check the fingers and toes, make sure they've all of them. And uh, he's busy counting his fingers and toes. And I was busy saying, I was so tired. I said, please take him away. I think he'll fall and he'll break. <laughs> so the nurses took him away. But I thought he was the loveliest, most beautiful thing ever because he had this lovely blonde head and this red cheeks and I suppose he was red all over. I just thought he was absolutely beautiful. And after being in the hospital for a whole month, I couldn't wait to get out. It was during this time in August 1972 that another local woman, Joan Bullock, said goodbye for the final time to her husband's cousin Tommy Bullock and his wife Emily. Joan lives right beside Ahalane Bridge and her family used to own the local filling station. She recalls the area at that time, 33 years ago, a time of huge change for this small community. Well, this is just, we're right on the border here between um, Fermanagh and Cavan and just right along the Shannon Erin Waterway. And um, in 1968, whenever I came here, it was a very free and easy sort of a place. Lovely atmosphere and uh, the biggest concern of everyone was the customs, you know, with what the customs were doing. And that was really the main the main talk. And in those days, um, there wasn't a lot of uh, traffic on the road. But uh, the, the quarry people here in Derry Lynn were just starting to take off. And uh, the first thing that in the morning you'd find about nine o'clock would be the lorries all queuing up at the customs post to, to get across the road. But uh, we just lived in a thatched house at, right at the, the wall of the garden uh, joined up with the bridge and the bridge uh, was um, the border. And on the other side of the bridge was the customs post from the Republic side. And then just at our back gate was the customs post in the northern side. So we were really in between. And uh, whenever we were digging a pond across the road, um, we, we... we discovered that it was it used to be where the river used to go. So that when the bridge was built during the time of the famine, it was really built in County Cavan, and then the river was diverted. So we always used to say we had a wee bit of Cavan in our garden. Um, the first thing that we noticed, it, it was actually, it must have been about uh, um, three or three years or so after the trouble started in Belfast and, and, and Derry, that there was much here. And it started off really just removing signs from the... Um, northern side of the bridge you know welcome to Fermanagh and things like that and then the next thing uh, happened would be um, um, hijacking buses just uh, in the northern side again and then there would be um, attacks on the customs post Um, first of all they would break the windows that that was that was what happened and then they were it was blown up and then we had a filling station and the windows were broken in it as well. And then we used to have hoax bombs at the left there. And this was the way it went on. And it sort of escalated. 
the first of all it was just a bit of um, nothing very serious but it was really very sad when you think what happened finally was that people were murdered and 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 it just, it just changed the whole atmosphere of the area it's hard for me to imagine what times were like back then hard for me as a 22 year old now to think of my movements being restricted by fear and worry on a daily basis um, the first time I saw the bus being hijacked, I couldn't really believe it was happening because it was just out of the customs post and uh, these young lads were telling people to get out and I thought, well, it's not really happening. And then a short time after that, one morning, um, um, the, the, I was having a, a bath and I was going in to see the obstetrician and the window of the bathroom came in and I just didn't know what was happening. And then... Um, it, it, it was a bomb there and then it, that was just the way it went on you got to the stage where you didn't know what was going to happen but every week or maybe 10 days something happened there was an incident so that you were really on eggs all the time it, it got to the stage where, where um, you were a bit uneasy you know you didn't know if you went out you didn't know what was going to meet you when you came back and it was the same with uh, you know uh, people who used to come and see you they, they, they got frightened as well and they didn't really want to come either. Joan remembers Tommy and Emily well, the shy, timid farmer Tommy was, who fell in love with Emily, a woman who lived a few miles down the road. Tommy was a very quiet, shy man and uh, he was sort of, I think, about his 40s or, you know, quite well on whenever he got married. He was born in Maguire's Bridge and he didn't really uh, start his life over here. But then he had um, an uncle uh, who was unmarried and he left him the farm. So Tommy came over here uh, to live just on the farm next to, next to ours. And he lived there in a the big house all by himself. Uh, Emily lived down farther down the road about half a mile or so in the gate lodge and then she went over to England and when uh, she went away then he missed her dreadfully and then he went over and then they got married over there and they came came back again and she was a very um, um, oh she was a very agreeable sort of girl and you know she was full of fun and she was uh, she would sort of draw Tommy out for Tommy would just be very very quiet and very reserved but Emily was the, was the opposite and she would be a wee bit fiery as well so uh, they they went around or they were friends or whatever it was in those days for quite a long time and nothing seemed to be happening so then I think Emily thought well if I don't uh, do something here this man's never going to Propose so they she went off to England then, and when she was away, then Tommy really missed her, and then he went over to England, and uh, they got married over there, and then at a later stage they came back to live at Killinick.
the day that Emily was murdered, uh, that day I brought her down in the car. I was bringing my mother-in-law down to visit an old friend in Derry Lynn and Emily was, was, was speaking to my mother-in-law at the time. She had come down on her bicycle to the shop and I said I was going and I said, why don't you come with me? And she just jumped in the car and, you know, went down. And she had a lovely chat with, with this old lady, Mrs McMullen, and, uh, and she had had a bunch of sweet pea in her hand as well. And Mrs McMullen... Uh, I sort of admired them and Emily just gave them to her, you know. And she was really a lovely sort of person. And um, so then whenever we came home again, um, I left her off at my mother-in-law's house and uh, she was getting onto her bicycle. And um, this car went past and sort of slowed up and almost stopped. And these boys kept looking behind. And... um, Emily said to me, well, those fellas will know us the next time they see us. And then I just couldn't believe that a few hours later that Emily was murdered. Mervyn Dane is a retired journalist. From Fermanagh, he worked on the local unionist newspaper, The Impartial Reporter, for almost 50 years. He recalls reporting on the murders of Tommy and Emily. It would have been after tea time, maybe seven o'clock or so. So I went directly then and picked up a photographer and we went out to the Bullock home, which I really knew. I knew Mr Bullock as well. And it was uh, quite nerve-wracking to walk into the deserted house with the two bodies there in the kitchen. Mrs Bullock was lying at a door near a doorway, and she had a, remember she had a flowered apron on her, and she was holding a brush, I think, in her hand. And the belief is that she was trying to sort of shoo the raiders out. And Mr. Bullock, he was sitting in an armchair, and as far as I remember, and he had bullet wounds about the chest or something. And uh, there was quite a lot of damage inside the kitchen. Uh, the television screen was broken, and various things hit by stray bullets. And uh, so that was quite nerve nervous occasion. Well, it must have been about uh, three or four o'clock. And then uh, my husband was doing the milking and um, a neighbour came down and he said that um, they'd heard shots and that there had been people at his, in his, at trying or up at his house. And then they discovered they'd been at another neighbour's house as well. So he went up to see if Tommy and Emily were all right and then he found them dead. Emily was just at the... She was on her knees at the scullery and she had tried to stop them and they just shot her and she had just gone down on her knees. And then Tommy always used to watch the news, you know, about six o'clock, between five and half past five and six. And Tommy, Tommy had been on the settee and he was just he was just dead there, too. Well, I remained at the house for a short time t- till uh, until the police and uh, other people arrived. So then it just discreetly withdrew and started preparing a report. 
for it. And a photographer, a young chap was with me, he was quite affected by the scene. Uh, he was more, suffered more from shock, uh, surprise and shock at the con- action. I just couldn't. I just couldn't believe it because, you know, many's a day you wouldn't see see her, but having brought her down to Derry Lynn and back again, and just a few hours later, this you just couldn't believe that this could have happened. From somewhere or other, uh, I'd heard that the gunmen had driven off uh, and were actually fired stray shots and cheered as they were leaving the scene. And they headed towards Achillean Bridge, as far as I remember. And um, so it was quite a serious event at that time. on the Sunday because I know my parents were up and I, I didn't go to the funeral I stayed at home with the children and um, they, they just talk, people just talked about uh, the large crowd and I know there was a big there was a big crowd at the funeral three or four days after Tommy and Emily's uh, funeral we had um, there was quite a lot of media coverage at the time and uh, someone came, I think it was David Capper from the BBC, uh, was speaking to someone at the filling station that we had, and uh, they had said something to uh, David Capper, and then he he reported that the f- that the filling station owner had, had seen these people. So then the day after Tommy and Emily's funeral, um, there was a carload of boys came up and uh, put a bomb in the filling station and in the tire depot, and they said that'll teach you to talk to the media. So after that, then uh, no one would talk to them at all. Betty Leonard is convinced that the brutal murder of Tommy and Emily was linked to Louis's murder. Louis was rumoured to have been involved in IRA activity around the area during that time, and he was first on the list after the Bullocks murder. The talk was between the people in the pub. If another Protestant was going to be shot in the Timor Dalian area, then Louis Leonard was going to be shot. And if we had taken it seriously, we could have considered moving. But we had no idea that was going on, that kind of talk. So the Bullocks were murdered that same year, 1972. So it was assumed that Louis was murdered in retaliation for them. But it was assumed by most people, I think, that it was like a tit-for-tat thing. Louis didn't have long to get to know his new son, Tony. It was Friday, December 15th, the run-up to Christmas, and Betty and Louis's butcher shop was busy as ever. Betty recalls visiting her husband that evening. Without knowing, it was the final time she would see him. The last time I saw him was in the shop that evening. It was the 15th of December. And... There was somebody in the shop, some of the local fellas, I can't remember which one, I think it was Tommy Curry, and uh, we were chatting and I was saying about how I 
was sort of scared going over to listen to Ski because I knew the soldiers would be about me. I knew they'd be giving me hassle. And I went on then to talk about robberies. And uh, this fella said to Louis, now what would you do if you were robbed? What if somebody came in here tonight and went to rob you? And he said, I have the knives and I know how to use them. So then when he went off quietly with these people who killed him, that stuck in my head. He had knives there. He had said it and he didn't get a chance to use them. So why had he walked off with them? The only reason I can think of was because they were official. They had uniforms of some kind. Otherwise, if he had a suspect that they were taking him away to kill him, he certainly would have put up a struggle. He wouldn't have gone willingly. But he was in great humour when I left, and it was very late that night. And I remember thinking, gosh, I'm not going to be back till all hours. And he was saying, hurry up now, because I need, we have a lot to do, and I need lots of help. And he was in no way concerned when I was leaving. But he wouldn't have been a worrywarm. I suppose I was the worrier of the two anyway. And uh, if he had thought I was in danger, he certainly wouldn't have sent me off. So he had absolutely no concerns of anything. That's why I say we weren't concerned about things like Louis being killed or God bless us or anything like that. It was the ordinary everyday things we would have been worrying about. The next morning at nine o'clock, Louis still hadn't returned home. Betty reported him missing at the local police station. At half past ten, she returned to the butcher shop where she found crowds of people had gathered. She walked through the people and came across the local doctor. When I arrived at the shop that morning, um, there were a lot of people in the shop. And I remember seeing Hugh, the brother, coming out of the back of the shop and he had these big wild eyes. He actually ended up in hospital. And uh, he was saying, don't come in, don't come in. Uh, when I was going in through the shop door, I met the local doctor coming out and the priest was there and the priest tried to tell me the heart attack and the doctor said it was murder. He said, he's murdered. The police never told me. They never said. They never came and told me anything. He was shot a lot of times. I think he was standing with his back to them and they shot him up either side and that he turned round and they shot him in the face because they were trying to work out how they would have walked him to the fridge. So if he was standing with his back to them and he must have had his hands up, I presumed he was cutting beef whether they went out and left him and came back unexpectedly or something, maybe, that he had his back to them and that's why they shot him on both sides and then he would have turned round and they shot him in the face and then left him there in the freezer and closed the door and walked off well uh, whenever we heard about louis murder we, we just we couldn't we couldn't really believe it i i i didn't know him at all because he had i, I think he had came he came from uh, newton butler or ross Lay or somewhere like that over there so i didn't really know him at all but it was uh, it was horrendous, just horrendous murder altogether. There have been so many incidents happening, and the people seem said, you know, that there didn't seem to be any law and order, that the terrorists could just come and do whatever they like. I remember leaning over the coffin and finding the smell, because I remember thinking, oh God, this isn't my Louis, even though it looked like him, and he looked fine. He didn't look any different. Um, but that's the one thing I think that sticks in my mind. Imagine, you know, having a smell off Louis. Because I didn't understand at the time 
I suppose, been so traumatised, you know, and there's so many people about it. It was sort of nearly all a blur, really. Just that's the only thing I can... that sticks. I don't even know how we drove to the chapel. I don't even remember that now. I do remember being in the chapel afterwards, but I don't remember the journey. But I remember that little bit in the morgue going in, and I think I was trying to kiss him in the coffin. And that's when I found this smell, and I thought, that's not my Louis even though it looked like him. If I remember <clears throat> saying to my sister, I wouldn't say it to my mother, but I certainly said it to my sister, why didn't I die as well? And she said, because you have to be here to mind your son. And I said, but sure, he would have managed. There was loads of people to mind him. Because on the night that Louis died, I asked my brother to leave me at the door of the butcher shop to wait on Louis to come back. And he wouldn't do that. And I often said to him afterwards, if you had, I would have been here when they brought Louis back. And he then would say, but they would have killed you too. And I would say, but I would be happier then. So it would go on and on. And that went on for a long time. Uh, I can't remember when I realised that maybe it wouldn't have been such a good idea. And then I remember driving in and out the road when things were really bad, maybe four or five months after he died. And I wasn't able to pray. I didn't just, I would be sort of saying, if there is a God, would you ever? Because it was just, everything was so black and I couldn't see a future. Betty and Joan haven't seen each other in years. Now that's the sort of colour of tea I like, Betty. I hope it's good and yeah. strong. The last cup of tea we had together actually was when you brought the wee Indian man. Do you remember? Was oh, he a missionary? Yes, Father yes. Jerry. Did yes, I bring that, him You yours? brought him down to my house. Yeah, that was the yeah. last cup of tea we had They meet together. in Betty's house for tea. Yeah. Do you still hear from him? I do indeed. The conversation soon turns to what went on during those years in 1972. But I suppose because I didn't know you, Joan, at the time, I have no idea what it was like for you no. at that time. Yeah, yeah. No more than you would, I suppose, have known what it was no, like for me. No, So, And then someone said to me, oh, that was, that was Betty Leonard. And I, I said, oh, that was the girl that lost her husband, you know. And and I, I, I know at the time of the tragedies, uh, there was so much. It was just... It was just an awful time, because it was one after one thing after another, wasn't it, Betty? There was at that time. You know the way it was fearful for me. Yeah, that's. But right. it would be different for you. Yeah, yeah. So how would you have? Well, you see, um, to be quite honest, I would have left. You know, I would have left because you were on eggs all the time because there were people coming and going and and things happening and there was. I say there were claymore mines left at the gate and there was used to have these hoax uh, bombs left and you'd get an odd phone call saying things. At you your see. house? Well, at the filling station. We had a filling station. Times like weddings are very difficult because you have to go as a single person. That's, I suppose, when I really do miss him or having some companion or funerals or functions, family functions or that. Um, and I suppose I never envisaged having to live on my own, which I do now. I would have always thought I had a partner for life and the fact that I haven't has had to make me change my whole lifestyle. I didn't just lose a husband and a partner. I think I lost an awful lot more in life because I know we would have had lots of children 
and the fact that he wasn't here and I didn't meet anyone else means I didn't have any more. That is a big loss in my life. Well, there's a whole lot of murders just the same, you know. And and uh, I have, you know, I've been speaking to quite a lot of different people who, who have been through um, different experiences. And uh, it's the it's the it's the young it's the young widows who were left with children that all these things were were um, affected their lives. You know, if you have a, if you've got a family and you're you're left because. Uh, it's 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 very tough, you know, and you you're bound to be bitter and wonder why. And Tommy and Emily's case, it was an awful thing too, and um, they didn't have a family, a small, a young family of their own laid behind. But I know if 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 Tommy had been murdered, I I don't know how Emily would have coped with it, you know, because uh, because she'd have always been thinking, well, could I have done something to help him, to save him? I suppose I console myself would be an operative word that if that's what it took to bring peace and to bring some sort of justice to Northern Ireland then maybe it was worth it um, I have to think like that because if I didn't I suppose I would feel very bitter I don't feel bitter I never did feel bitterness I would love to know what happened to them I would love to know why why depicting Louis, who's such a wonderful person. I know everyone says that by once they've lost, but he was definitely unique. Um, and I'm sure others that have lost people in Northern Ireland think the same. But if that's, as I say, what it took, then maybe somewhere along the way it will have been worth it. It's hard sometimes to think like that because I think of my son having lost a father, which is an awful awful blow to him maybe more so than me losing a partner because even yet he could do it a father figure he had my brother until he died and he was a great father figure to him but um, it's a big price to pay it really is but if I thought that you know peace came about then certainly I'd have to say well if I have to suffer for the long term peace for everyone else for my grandchildren my great grandchildren then so be it Bridge was reopened by Senator George Mitchell in 1999. For people like Joan and Betty, it meant they didn't have to make a 12-mile detour to get from their homes in Fermanagh to the towns of Cavan down the road. For me, well, it means I can drive down the road, over the bridge, and visit places north of the border in less than 10 minutes. The George Mitchell Monument passes on my left as I make my way over to Derry Lynn. It's a good reminder. Well, you have to be very 
energetic to be to keep up with that, don't you? Huh? Takes more idea than the salsa dancing, Betty. Huh? Well, we did the salsa dancing too. It's yeah. really good, but yeah. you need men with you, and there's not that many of them about. No, no, not many around around this area that be swinging their hips in salsa dancing, huh? <laughs> well, Joe, it's lovely seeing you, and hopefully we'll meet again soon. Well, you wouldn't know where Betty would yeah. see each other on the, on the, on the, our paths, probably cross again yeah, before sure long.